Our next section in Daniel chapter 11 is one of the more challenging sections to read uh, in the Old Testament. It is a selective historical overview of some of the events from the Persian ruler Cyrus to the Greek ruler Antiochus IV. The bulk of it is from about 325 to 160 BC. Remember, this is the first half of the final revelation to Daniel. We'll be stopping at verse 35, but the final revelation to Daniel begins in chapter 11, verse 2, and goes through, uh, well, chapter 12, verse 4, and then there's a little bit more at the end of chapter 12. So this is the first half of it this morning. And our simple question today is, why? Why did God reveal and preserve this unusual history of part of the ancient Greek empire. So we're going to just simply talk through the passage and then ask why. Now, last Sunday's Bible study was the introduction to this sermon. It gave the important historical background to this. So if you missed that, I certainly encourage you to go back and watch it. So we're just going to start right into the text. Daniel 11, verse 2. Let's pause and pray. Father, may your kind, generous love for your people overflow now in granting to us what we want, and that is that your word would transform us, would shape and fashion us in your likeness, would open our eyes to your glory, would humble us before your majesty, would break us of our sin, would fill us with faith and joy in you. If the Lord is our shepherd, and we don't lack anything we need, we need your word working in our hearts. So guide us as our shepherd today by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here comes history. Daniel 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, so Daniel was in his 80s. Cyrus was emperor of Persia. But after Daniel died and Cyrus died, three more kings would arise in Persia. And then a fourth. That fourth is Xerxes I. The Bible calls him by the title Ahasuerus. He was Esther's husband. But the point here is that he stirred up Persia to attack Greece, and he failed. More than a century passes between verses 2 and 3, because more than a century later, later, the Greek empire rose. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as we can tell from verse 4, this is Alexander the Great. Verse 4, and as soon as he, is, as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority by which, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Alexander soared to world conquest and power, but then died suddenly at the age of 32 
None of his children survived to be able to follow him. And so the empire was divided in four directions in four major portions, all of which were, of course, smaller and weaker than what Alexander had at his peak. Verse 5, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority, that prince, his authority shall be a great authority. Okay, so here the story moves ahead to describe the conflict between two parts of the divided Greek kingdom. This is about 300 years before the coming of Jesus. And this whole passage is going to call the rulers of these two parts of the Greek kingdom, the king of the south and the king of the north. It's actually a whole succession of kings, two dynasties, the kings of the south and the kings of the north. So verse 5 refers to the king of the south. And it actually refers to the king of the north also, because that prince who became a ruler and became even greater than the king of the south, that's the first king of the north. So in verse 5, we have the first king of the south, which is Ptolemy I, and we could call that kingdom, to keep it easy, let's call it Egypt. And we have the first king of the north, who was Seleucus I, and to keep that easy, we could call the kingdom of the north Syria. Syria and Egypt, north and south, Seleucus I and Ptolemy I. And verse 5 tells us that Ptolemy was in power, Seleucus had had some setbacks and had to come be a general under Ptolemy. They won a big victory. Seleucus got the credit. And in the aftermath of that, he got his own kingdom, Syria, which was the largest portion of the Greek empire. And so that begins these two dynasties, kings of the south, kings of the north. And generally speaking, though they were oftentimes related in various ways, they hated each other. And so what unfolds next is a long story of civil war. That's basically the next 30 years, the back and forth power struggles between these two kingdoms. Did I say 30 years? 30 verses, the back and forth power struggle of these two kingdoms for 150 years. And because they were to the north and south of Israel, that's why it calls them kings of the south and kings of the north, Israel um, got trampled over in that back and forth. Nothing so fun as being stuck in the middle of a civil, somebody else's civil war. And that was what Israel, where Israel found themselves. So as the chapters go along, we read of these dynasties of the kings of the north and south, a whole series of rulers, and they're all just called kings of the south, kings of the north. And so when we come to verse six, time has already passed. Two different civil wars have already happened. And we have new kings in the south and the north. Verse six, after some years, they shall make an alliance. So this is Ptolemy II in the south and Antiochus II in the north who decided to try to get along. And they decided to try to get along through a marriage alliance. The king of the south gave his daughter, Berenice, to the king of the north. One small problem was that the king of the north was already married. So he had to get divorced to accept the gift from of the daughter of the king of the south and this launches a very sordid tale of subterfuge and betrayal poisoned by the ex-wife and other murders and so this is what is kind of cryptically described at the end of verse six where it says after some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north 
to make an agreement. She was given in marriage to try to help bridge the gap. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. That's the king of the south. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. It's one of those great stories where in the end, basically everybody gets killed. And then the curtain goes down, and you're like, that was so encouraging. <laughs> Verse 7, And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. So that's Berenice's brother, Ptolemy Third, who became king in the south. It is so cool that I get to say the PT sound 800 times this morning. Ptolemy the third, he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So first of all, Ptolemy III was not at all happy about all this nonsense that had been going on. So he attacked the north. He was very successful. He plundered a huge amount of territory. Then he had to get back to Egypt to deal with trouble at home. And so as the end of verse 8 says, for some years he refrained from attacking the king of the north. And during that time, the north was able to reestablish its power. So much so that the king of the north decided he'd try a little attack back at Egypt. Verse 9, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. You can tell that didn't go very well. Um, He had too many problems at home to really wage war on Egypt. But verse 10, his son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. That fortress would be Uh, Egyptian fortresses down near the border of Israel and Egypt. So what verse 10 is describing is the successful campaigns by the new king of the north, Antiochus III, who is now fairly successfully attacking Egypt. And it's probably good for us to remember, see it says, he shall keep coming and overflow and pass through reminding us again that Israel is getting trampled back and forth in these things. And it's also important for us to remember something said last week. It's not just that Israel happened to be in the middle. It's that both of these empires wanted to control the region that included Israel. It was prime territory, and they both wanted to possess it. So as of verse 10, the north has the upper hand. And at this point, we are a couple hundred years before Jesus. Verse 11, then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he, that's the king of the north, shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his, the king of the south's, hand. Okay, so after the north, Antiochus III had some successes. Ptolemy IV rises in the south, and he strikes back with rage And this is this famous battle we talked about last Sunday at the southern border of Israel. It's the battle that included the war elephants on both sides, and the south won a dominant victory. But Ptolemy IV was a fool, and his heart far too foolish and lustful to handle success and victory. 
And so, verse 12, when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. And so, history tells us that Ptolemy became very arrogant and decided to live a life full of every kind of sinful pleasure he could find, rather than, you know, worrying about the fact that he was a king who had a kingdom to run. And uh, so, his kingdom rapidly weakened. And as a result, the king of the north, who is still Antiochus III, was able to come back and retake the land of Israel and even force an Egyptian surrender. That's what we read about beginning in verse 13. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. So again, this is describing how the north retook the area that included Israel, pushed down into the northern border of Egypt. What's especially important here is verse 14, which says that the violent among your own people. So who's that? Remember, this is the angel Gabriel bringing a revelation from God and he's speaking to Daniel. So the violent among your own people would be the Jewish people. And it says they will lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Now, we don't have enough outside historical information about that time under Antiochus III to know exactly what happened, but it sounds like there were some violent Jews who thought, this must be the end. We got to bring in the messianic kingdom that these revelations from Daniel had been about. And so somehow they tried to use violence to usher in the, the kingdom, and they failed. Verse 16, but he, that's the king of the north, Antiochus III, who comes against him, that's the king of the south, shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. So basically that just means Antiochus III was very powerful and very successful. He was called Antiochus the Great. Verse 16 continues, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So he now had control over the land of Israel, and he stood with destruction in his hand. I think it's a little bit of um, foreshadowing that's going on there. Because actually, at this point in history, Antiochus and the Jews were generally buddy-buddy, and they had a good relationship, and he was being good to them. So when it says, he stood in the glorious land with destruction in his hand, What it's referring to is him looking south to Egypt from Israel because he's coming. You'll see that in the very next verse. He's still on the attack against against Egypt. But it's kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen soon with his son, Antiochus IV, in the land of Israel. So verse 16, Antiochus III stands in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Verse 17, and he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. To come against Egypt. But then the next phrase says, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. Now that is weird. He stands there in the land of Israel. He's got destruction in his hand. He is ready to wipe out Egypt. And he shows up with a peace treaty. 
Something happened in between. You know what happened? Rome happened. The Roman Empire was growing in power and had spread across the Mediterranean and, 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 and was not at all in favor of Antiochus's attacks against Egypt. And he realized he had to stop. And so instead of coming and attacking Egypt as he wanted to, he decided to come and try to make peace. So verse 17, he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He, the king of the north, shall give him, the king of the south, the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So the king of the north's daughter was the 10-year-old Cleopatra I. And he gave her to the 16-year-old king of the south. But, and his hope was that she would be a disloyal wife, loyal to her daddy. Problem was, she turned out to be a loyal wife and was not faithful to her, well, was not loyal to her dad. And so the marriage didn't help the north. As a matter of fact, it hurt them. But, verse 18, Antiochus III continued to try to expand his territory. It wasn't going to work in Egypt, so he looked other places. Verse 18, afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. So Antiochus III made the big mistake of messing with Rome and attacking some territories that Rome did not want him to touch. And he got whipped in a series of battles against the Roman general Scipio. Verse 19, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Antiochus III returned home in humiliation and then got assassinated. The story immediately moves on because one of Antiochus III's sons became king, and he decided it was a great idea to begin his rule with a bunch of new taxes. And he was promptly assassinated, as we read in verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute. I don't know, maybe 80,000 new IRS agents. For the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle because he was assassinated. And what happens next between uh, after verse 20 is very complicated, but basically another son of Antiochus III um, surprisingly and somewhat unfairly seized power. And that son was the king who's become very well known to us by now, the infamous Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, who was introduced in verse 21. In his place, so this is in the place of his brother who just got assassinated, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He wasn't supposed to become king. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So now we've come ahead to the 170s BC. In the past 15 or 16 verses, we've skimmed past many generations of kings of the north and kings of the south. But now this king of the north gets the next 15 verses, or maybe even a little bit further. It's all about Antiochus IV. And verse 21 introduces him as a contemptible person. 
we could translate it, a despicable person. Verse 22, armies shall be swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. That's a little bit cryptic, but it's most likely that that's referring to the Jewish high priest. It's kind of a long story, but basically Antiochus started taking bribes for who wanted to be high priest and whoever would give him the most money and promise to help the Jewish people abandon their faith the most could be high priest. Isn't that great for the Jewish people to have high priests who bought their office because they would promise to help you become as, help their people become as unfaithful to God as possible? Um, so that reference to him breaking the prince of the covenant may be a reference to him getting rid of the uh, faithful high priest. Now, the next verses, 23 and 24, I don't really know about. Um, we don't have historical, outside historical information, um, but apparently they're describing more of the early reign of Antiochus IV, verse 23. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. <clears throat> Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And then we come to verse 25, and verses 25 and 26 describe the conflict that arose once again between the north and the south. Verse 25, and he, the king of the north, shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So in verses 25 and 26, we have hints to at least two different pretty brutal civil wars that went on, resulting in the south being overcome by Antiochus IV. Verse 27, and as for the two kings, so this is the northern king Antiochus IV and his nephew, who is king of the south, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So history tells us that in the midst of these brutal civil wars, Antiochus and his nephew decided to have a little peace summit, and they got together down at the border of Egypt, and they made promises, and it was all lies. They were both making everything up just to try to deceive each other, as verse 27 says. So back to civil war they went. Antiochus continued trying to take Egypt, but he began to struggle. He began to have struggles at home. Verse 28, and he shall return to his land, return back up to the north with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So he heads home from Egypt back to Syria, but his heart starts to be set against the Holy Covenant. So for some reason, he just began to hate the Jewish people. We know from last week the reason. It's a satanic reason why he begins to hate the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. And Maccabees tells us that on that trip through Israel, he stopped in Jerusalem, went into the temple, and took everything he could find that was valuable, including the, the candlestick and the bread table and the altar of incense and everything that he could take, he took and then headed back to the north. And then he decided to try to attack Egypt again. Have we heard this before? Um, verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. Why? Again, Rome. This time, the Roman navy. 
verse 30, for ships of Kittim, that's Cyprus. So it's just saying ships of the Mediterranean shall come against him. So Antiochus is coming down toward Egypt. The Roman Navy comes across the Mediterranean and meets him. And the Roman consul hands Antiochus a letter from the Roman Senate that says, don't you dare go into Egypt, go home. Not exactly in those words, that's my translation. But, and Antiochus says, I need time to think about it. And the Roman consul took a stick and drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and said, you're not leaving that circle till you give us an answer. And he said, okay, I give in. And he left. Verse 30, second phrases, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant, the, pe- the unfaithful Jews. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus IV came back into Israel with great rage and did everything possible to destroy the Jewish faith, taking away everything precious to them, slaughtering some of them, including babies, enslaving some of them, outlawing every single part of the Jewish faith, publicly burning the Jewish scriptures. We've talked about all that previously. And then finally, he set up a pagan altar over the top of the altar in the temple so that he could rededicate the temple of Yahweh to pagan gods. It was an abomination that made the temple desolate. And notice that at the end of verse 30, it says, he shall pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And look at verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So there was a way to be safe from his rage. There was a way to be even on his good side to get his attention. All you had to do was compromise. All you had to do was violate your biblical convictions, and you'd be safe. You might even be honored. You might even get an award from the king for being citizen of the year if you're just willing to break your covenant relationship of faithfulness to your God. Many did compromise, but not all. Verse 32 continues, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. What made the difference was a real living faith a real personal knowledge of God. Those people stood firm. Verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. There was great persecution and even death for those who were faithful. Yet there were wise, faithful people who were able to help other Jews understand and stand firm. Verse 34, When they stumble... They shall receive a little help that might be referring to the Maccabean revolt, but I'm not convinced of that. Verse 34 continues, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. So the people who were being faithful were sometimes being joined with people whose motive was not to please God. Verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble. Even some of those who were wise would begin to cave into the pressures. Yet God had a good purpose, verse 35 continues, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, 
for it still awaits the appointed time. So that horrible time would also be a refining time for God's people. They would have great struggle and even stumble sometimes, and yet God would ensure that they were ultimately refined and purified and made white because he was getting them ready for something that was still to come later. Now, in verse 36, it seems to continue describing Antiochus IV. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done." Okay, that sounds a lot like Antiochus IV, but as you keep going past verse 36, which we'll do next Sunday, it sounds less and less like Antiochus IV until it just can't be him any longer. You go 37, 38, 39, maybe it could be Antiochus. You get to 40, 41, no. By verse 45, no chance. It's Antiochus IV. And so we remember a couple things. First of all, Remember that as this passage has gone along, even from one verse to the next, the identity of the king of the north has changed. We've gone down this procession of a whole bunch of kings of the north and south. So it wouldn't be any surprise at all if we had another switch to another king of the north. The second thing we remember is that as we've seen many times in Daniel already, Antiochus IV is a lens through which we can look ahead and see a final terrible ruler later at the end of the age, right before Jesus comes again. And so it's completely reasonable in this passage to think that at some point it stops describing Antiochus IV and moves ahead to a later king of the north, the final terrible ruler at the end of the age. So we will come back to that next Sunday. But for the rest of our time, I just want to ask this morning, why? Why these 16 verses we just looked at that... um, I mean, we started long before that, but why this section about this 150 years of Greek history that it really focuses on? I mean, it's interesting. Civil wars and deception and lines in the sand and power plays and the Roman Navy and arranged marriages and ex-lovers poisoning each other and war elephants. Um, But we could find similar things in any part of human history. Why did God reveal these events to Daniel and the Jewish people several hundred years before they happened? And why are we reading it this morning? I mean, it would be an easy passage to skip, right? You know, it's it's not the cool church of the year award kind of sermon to go through this stuff. Why talk about it? Well, it's the word of the Lord. We're going to talk about what's in the Bible. But Still, why? why? Why all this Greek empire background? Here are five ideas. Number one, God may have revealed these things to reassure his people that he is sovereign. This passage demonstrates that God could both foretell and guide all of these events. It's remarkable that God could foretell them. The events happened hundreds of years after God revealed them to Daniel. But it's not just about foretelling. It's about controlling Remember that God told Nebuchadnezzar, there was a lesson he had to learn, and it was this. He said, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Three times in the passage, we have the phrase, the appointed time. 
We also just read when it's the time is decreed, when his end is decreed. Who appointed the time? Who did this decreeing? The God who was above all of these kingdoms because he rules. So God was reassuring his people and us that the raging of kingdoms back and forth with God's people stuck in the middle is not out of God's sovereign control. Number two, God may have revealed these things to prepare God's people for beastly kingdoms and a world of war. I think it's appropriate to view this passage as a model of what life in earthly kingdoms will be like. In any part of human history, including American history, you're going to find civil wars, power plays, marriages for political advantage, poisoning. I'm not sure we've had war elephants here in America, but though this has nothing to do with my sermon, but just so you know, I had to look it up. Have we had war elephants in America? And I learned that in 1862, the president of Siam wrote a letter to Abraham Lincoln offering him war elephants for the Civil War, which Lincoln turned down because he said, we've got steam engines. They do a better job. (laughs) The point, number two, the point is that throughout all of human history, God's people are going to find themselves living under beastly kingdoms, living in times of war, living under the authority of lying, cheating rulers. That's what it's going to be like to live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. Don't be surprised. Number three, God may have revealed these things to ensure that God's people notice the futility of earthly politics. Now, I do not mean that Christians shouldn't care about politics or get involved politically. That's not the point. But this is a This is a strong, strong emphasis in this passage. Dale Ralph Davis does a great job of pointing it out. And I don't have time to recount all that in detail. But at least every other verse through this passage contains a statement of frustrated ambitions. It starts with Alexander the Great, who conquers so much of the known world with incredible speed. And then at 32, he's dead. You've got these marriage alliances that didn't work. The lies didn't work. The military campaigns would sometimes temporarily successful. Other times didn't work. And even when they were successful, soon it would swing back the other way. All the way back in Daniel 2, verse 21, we read, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And throughout human history, this has been the story. Kings rise, kings fall. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Dynasties rise, dynasties fall. And so Dr. Davis points to this in Habakkuk 2, verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Why is it that politicians are so often frustrated that their great dreams and ideals just can't, they can't get to what they really wanted to accomplish? Why? It's from the Lord of hosts. He's not going to let them. God makes it all futile until the stone kingdom of Jesus comes, and then none of it's futile. Number four, to warn God's people against jumping too quickly to the conclusion that the end has come. John Lennox makes this proposal, though I think that he's, he's citing the work of Dale Gooding. The idea here is that part of the purpose of this passage could be to prepare the Jewish people to realize 
that they would often be in situations that looked like the time of the end. And so they needed to be careful to not assume too quickly that the time of the end had come. Verse 40 says, at the time of the end. But oftentimes the events before verse 40 looked like the time of the end. There would be wars. There would be rumors of the wars. A king from the north would come rushing down into Israel. Sometimes he would persecute God's people. This has got to be the end, right? Well, except that it happened over and over and over again. Take, for example, verse 16, which says that the king of the north would do as he wills and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Surely this is the end, right? Nope, it's only Antiochus III. It's not the end. Remember verse 14. In those times, many shall rise up and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. They probably thought it was the end, but they were wrong about the timing. Jesus said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So there will be repeated patterns in history and events similar to the final events are going to happen with frequency. And so as God's people who have God's word, we have to be watching, alert, but also careful about proclaiming with certainty, this has to be the end. What we ought to be able to say with certainty is this is on the pattern of the end. This is what it's going to be like, but we don't know if this is the end or not yet. It might be another round of events like the end. And we've had a great example of this just in the last year, right? Russia invades Ukraine. A king of the north invades kind of toward the south-ish, Israel's direction. And right away, there was a lot of talk about here we go, Gog and Magog, King of the North's coming. See, this is the end. I don't think so. I think it's another example of the kind of things that happen like the end, the kind of things that nations do. So the point is not to say we'll never be able to understand when the end is coming. The point is to say, look, it's going to be a repeated pattern. And so it makes us step back one step from the dogmatism that says, this is it, this is the end. No, say, this is on the pattern of the end, which means we got to be ready and we got to be alert and we got to be ready. But whether or not it's the end, we don't know until um, more happens. Then finally, number five, this passage is here, and we can know this for certain. This passage is to prepare God's people to be faithful. Because that's what the whole book of Daniel is here for. As we see in the New Testament, God tells us, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by persecution. Don't be surprised when arrogant rulers get their way and deception works and they rage against God's people and they even seem to succeed. God tells us in advance so that we won't be surprised so that we won't so easily fall to the temptations to compromise because it's always going to be there. And so five subpoints from verses 32 to 35, and each one of these speaks directly to us right now in 2023 in America. Verse 32 says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
He shall seduce with flattery those who are willing to be unfaithful to their God. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So this passage prepares us, first of all, to stand firm. The temptation to compromise will be fierce. It is already, isn't it? Isn't there an ungodly political correctness that already screws down on you? Get with the program. There was that dust up this week about the hockey player in the jersey and so forth. And you, you, I know probably many of you saw this, but that one hockey commentator on Canadian TV said, when, I don't, I don't know the exact words, but this is the point of what he said. When anybody says they won't do something because of their religious beliefs, that's terrifying to me. Those are his words. When anybody says they won't do something because of their religious beliefs, that's terrifying to me. So the temptation to compromise will be fierce, to be unfaithful to your God. It may not be life or death for us now, as it is in other places in the world, but it could be someday the temptation to violate our covenant relationship with God. But the thing is, we don't have to be threatened with death to give in. We can be threatened with something much less than death and still give in. So today is the day to stand firm against compromise in the strength of the Lord. And you might even stumble. Part of what I love about this passage is that it speaks directly about the fact that some stumbled. You might compromise, but if you do, get back up in the strength of the Lord. Come back to faithfulness to your God. Don't say, oh, I failed. It doesn't matter. It's all too late now. No, it's not. So first, stand firm. Second, take action. That's what verse 32 says. And what action you should take is going to depend on the situation and the Big picture. But we know from the book of the Revelation that the greatest action that the saints take in the last days that triumphs over the devil is their testimony. Revelation 12, 11, They conquered the devil by the word of their testimony. So share God's truth. Share the gospel in the darkest times. When you say to yourself, ah, oh, the world's falling apart. What can I do? What you can do is go talk about God's word with somebody else. Go take a little bit of God's truth and share it. They defeated the devil by the word of their testimony. Then thirdly, it comes from verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. So thirdly, walk in wisdom. Anybody can see that the world is on fire. That's easy. And anybody can panic. That's easy. And anybody can be a critic. That's easy. But who can be wise? Who can walk through the craziest times and see it God's way? That's wisdom. It's going to be the people who are saturated with God's word, who have had their minds and hearts changed to be more like the mind of Christ. These are the ones who will be able to walk in wisdom when the world's on fire. And then fourthly, it's the wise who are going to be able to help others understand. As we'll see in Daniel chapter 12, when times get crazy, people run to and fro trying to find answers. What an opportunity for God's wise people to share his word with others. Just this week, I was 
struggling to try to share the gospel with a man who was talking to me about how terrible the world is right now. And one of the things I was trying to express to him was that what we see happening in the world right now is just what the Bible said would happen as a result of sin. This is what sin does. This is what sin does to governments. This is what sin does to the human hearts. Everything we're seeing here goes back to mankind's decision to rebel against God. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to hear that. He didn't want to think about that. But I, I was trying to be faithful and speak some truth to him. So we can't just talk to people about things like politics. We need to share with them how our messed up world points to God as creator and judge, points to the sinfulness of man, points to the impacts of sin on the human heart and society, and points to our need for a great Savior in Jesus Christ. So that then we can tell them, there is a great Savior in Jesus Christ. God's wise people help others understand. And then finally, the sober words of verse 35. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So number five, accept the purifying fires. None of us wants persecution. None of us wants to suffer. None of us wants to stumble. But what if God takes those things and uses them to refine us, to purify us, to make us white? When you accept those purifying fires, the threats of those who want to destroy your faith lose their power. They say, you better compromise. You better get, give in or you're going to pay for it. And God's wise people say, if you make me pay for it, God is going to use that suffering for even greater good. So I don't want you to make me pay for it, but if you do, I'm not worried. He will refine me and purify me through it. To, the word, to use the words of Joseph, you will mean it for evil and God will mean it for good in my life and in my heart. So do your worst. I mean, I don't want you to do your worst. Don't do your worst. But if you're going to do your worst... By God's grace, I'm going to accept the purifying fires. So verses 32 through 35 prepare us to be faithful today. Can I emphasize again that verse 35 says, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. Now, of course, that in no way means that you should try to stumble. But it is great hope for all of us who have been unfaithful to our God. And we look at this passage and it calls us to stand firm and take action and speak up. And we're like, ah, I'm already a mess. I'm already a failure. I'm already compromised in my heart, in my life, in my body because of the sinful things I've done and unfaithfulness to my God. So this passage isn't for me. No, this passage is for you. This is about God's people who, in the midst of trying to be faithful to God, stumble. And yet, through it, God refines them and purifies them and makes them white. And so, the very fact that you're here this morning, the very fact that you're thinking about your stumbling means God is right here working in your life, seeking to use even your failures as part of your growth in the Lord. So, respond to Him today. Don't run from Him and say, I'm such a mess, there's no use. Respond to Him today. 
Say, yes, Lord, here I am. Pick me up. I need the touch of an angel to pick me up when I'm flat on my face in sin. Would you do that? Remember, the purpose of the book of Daniel is to guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. Isn't this a great passage for that? Let's pray. Father, would you bless your people under the pressure that we live under today? We hate what's happening to our country, and we pray that in your mercy you might stop what is happening to our country that has been such a remarkable, in some ways, exception to the trends of human beastly empires. And so we pray for our country that you might be merciful to us, bring the kind of revival of your people that would change this nation. And, but then, Lord, no matter what you choose to do with this nation, we pray that you would help us to stand firm, to be faithful to you, to know what kind of action we're supposed to take, to not get caught up in all the panic and all the hype, but to walk in wisdom, to see it your way, to be able to help other people understand, and to even accept the refining, purifying fires when it's things we never want to happen, but they are, to let you make us white to let you purify our sinful hearts to be more like yours. Oh, how much we need these perspectives in these days. So shape our hearts with these truths. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.